Well, let's talk about Bootsy for, for a moment. I mean, certainly a, a unique uh, character, unique player. Um, what what hit, hit it off with you in terms of uh, how he approaches music and, and also his, his playing? Well, you know, I knew of Bootsy and I, you know, liked him when I was a kid. And uh, he's, Bootsy's not that old, you know, he started out really young. And so when I saw him, I was pretty young. And I saw him with George and I saw the rubber band and all that stuff. And then when I had that opportunity to contact him, I, was interested, but we got along really well, and he was open to playing on other kinds of music. So he would play on Herbie or Sly and Robbie, Ryuichi Sakamoto, all, all kinds of things. And we kept kind of in touch doing that. And just a few months ago, he played on Iggy Pop song that we did. So he's we're still doing same things we were doing you just should try to do a lot more well, that explains on his new album iggy popped as the intro yeah that's right yeah that's... That meeting with uh with doing the we did a cover of purple haze with with iggy and bootsy and they both sing on it one of the uh, bootsy projects i really enjoyed too that you did was the uh, third eye with steve salas and buddy <clears throat> Buddy Miles. Yeah. Um, that one was sort of, uh, I mean, I took it as kind of like um, if uh, Band of Gypsies, you know, had, had moved 20 years later. Yeah, that's a little bit probably their concept. So. Um, another great one is the third rail. Yeah. Got that one here too, showing it. Uh, James Blood Ulmer, how did that come together? Um, I worked with Blood since uh, 70s. You know, we knew each other. And we always tried to find a way to make a band. And We had one with Zigaboo from The Meters. And, uh, we had another, the first one was with Ronald Shannon Jackson. And the last thing we did was with Jerome Braley from PFUNK. And so we keep trying. We're still talking. Let's talk about Bernie for a moment. Of course, we lost him last year, which was horrible. Um, but what a, um, from my perspective, I think it's fair to call him a genius. Um, what struck you about Bernie Worrell as a player? Um, well, Bernie was the first um, musician that I met from kind of P-Funk community that, that I started recording with. And I realized right away that, you know, he could pretty much adapt to any kind of music. And I took the opportunity to apply that. And we did a lot of things. We traveled a lot together and we did a lot of diverse music and I with Bernie have no real regrets because we did as much I think we did quite a lot and, you know I don't always agree with some of his other projects and 
Uh, I thought he could have excelled a little more in the department of musical presence as a keyboard player, as a voice, as a great voice. But um, he was there when people needed him, and he's a visible and available and uh, there on so many things. I can't regret the amount of things I did with him. I would hazard to guess, Bill, maybe 30 projects you did with him. Does that sound like a ballpark? Ballpark is more like 100. Wow. <laughs> is he credited on all of those? I, I think so. Wow. Well, I have, of course, the, the ones under his name that you guys did together, and those are all very special, and they're all very different. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, when he was more out front, I mean, that's when it was just so yeah, intense. You know, his playing had an intensity, even if it was sort of mellow. It had a certain quality um, and intensity that just like no one else. Yeah, no, it's very special and nothing quite like it. You know, it struck me uh, that during the 80s and into the 90s, at a time when sort of the, the P-Funk empire kind of uh, subsided in the early 80s, and there wasn't a whole lot coming out of that camp except for, you know, sporadic George Clinton albums and very few Bootsy albums, you kind of stepped in in a way um, and, you know, gave a lot of those guys a place to continue to express themselves musically, a platform. Um, and, and that was fantastic. And, and I think you also uh, challenged them and allowed them to do new things. Yeah. And I think one of the places where that coalesced the most was on the uh, Funk Chronomicon. Right. And I'm showing that now too. So that was, you know, were you thinking it was kind of, you know, hey, Funkadelic hasn't actually done an album in decades, so let's do one that's kind of like it? No, no, it was, um, you, you know, at the time you didn't really see the, you didn't notice the vacancy. You just felt these are guys, these guys are all great and they're still playing. So let's keep doing stuff, you know. George didn't always have his business together to make the records. And a lot of people were still alive, you know, like, Eddie Hazel was alive, and Scheider, everybody was around, so might be good to just record while we can, while everybody's here, you know, and, and uh, Bernie was always kind of front and center on that, Billy Bass was around, and, and it kind of brought in other people to, to you know, uh, come into that. Jerome Bradley. I mean, a lot of everybody was pretty much there, so it made no sense not to try to continue a little bit. And they all had specific ideas. Not everybody made a lot of sense, but some people did. 
I just showed I have the uh, OG Funk Billy Bass CD here too. Um, also the Zillatron with Bootsy in that Zillatron character. Right. Um, which was sort of like a, I guess, a more hard rock cutting edge uh, Bootsy kind of record. Yeah, that was kind of um, adding more metal and, and uh, harder sounds to the whole thing. So. How much of that did you sort of conceptualize ahead of time? How much time was spent on conceptualizing it versus just kind of coming up with stuff in the studio? Um, a lot of it was really coming up with stuff in the studio because we weren't under any real pressure in the studio. I had my own studio and we would kind of just sit there and go over stuff and then try things. And so there were some, some ideas were prefix but titles and themes and riffs and stuff but quite a lot of it was uh, spontaneous and then worked out not rushed you know just think of an idea and then develop it because we always spent quite a lot of time doing that at your your peak you know how many hours a week were you spending in the studio do you think hours i couldn't say but um Five or six weeks, if we were really on something, and we would usually start at um, maybe around 11 and go till maybe 5 o'clock. It wasn't like Prince and those guys who go 24 hours in the studio and then sleep in the studio. It wasn't that kind of scene. It was more like 11 or 12 to 5 or 6. I had a studio in, uh, for those records, it was in uh, in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. And I would work till about five and I had a deal with this production company called The Bomb Squad. It was Hank Shockley and they had Public Enemy. And so I would work till about five and then Hank would work from about six till morning. And that was the way the studio worked. And that was around the time of Public Enemy was doing a lot of production stuff. Did, did you kind of inspire or mentor those guys at all? Or what was that relationship like? No, we had just bumped into each other. There was a connection. Some of the musicians I had, he was curious about. He was a smart guy. He knew about things I had done in the past. And when I brought people like uh, Buddy Miles or Bootsy, he would always want to interact with them. Um, but, I, you know, we didn't get into anything too heavy well i'm holding up a couple of the buckethead cds now um the um monsters and robots and giant robot um what an amazing player i mean uh, you mentioned him earlier but um how would you explain or can you explain his style and his ability uh, well, it's a character. It's hard to um, 
to accommodate that or to appropriate him as a musician. It's not a musician who comes into the world to play with musicians. It's more like someone who establishes this character and then does demonstrations of what his capabilities are. He's, you know, he's got the the look and he, he, you know, learned the technique by diligent, disciplined practice. Um, and every once in a while, he discovers something he likes and he kind of reaches out. But for the most part, he's himself and he just does his own thing. Um, not a group player. We had moments where we had bands and I thought that was pretty healthy for him. But then after that, he kind of disappeared back into the solo world. I know he really liked playing with Bernie. He liked Bootsy and he liked Michael Jackson. That's about it. I heard uh, he's having some health issues. Uh, currently, I don't know if you're aware of that, but I, I hope he's doing okay. Well, yeah, I'm aware of it, and I'm not really sure what's going on. So, so does he break character in the, in the studio, or is he just like that all the time? Um, depends on it. Depends on what you mean by breaking character. I'd say he never really breaks character with anyone. That's committed. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about the mass thing, but when he go just him, he never really comes out of that that guy that's there. So. I also have here uh, some vinyl, and one of them's uh, Menace, which you also worked on, and that um, I believe brought together an old um, band member, a, a musical uh, partner of yours from long ago with some of the P-Funk guys. How did, how did that project come about and um, what are your thoughts or memories about that? Well, Menace I knew from, from Michigan. You know, we grew up together in Michigan and we lived in Lansing, Michigan, and Detroit area. And we came to New York together and he always had ties with funk people and kept ties with them. Um, I'm in touch still, I guess, a little bit with him today, so. You've worked with so many uh, people, Bill. Are there some artists that you still kind of hope to work with that you have not yet done so? Is there anyone that comes to mind? Um, You know, not so much. There's a lot of people that uh, have passed that I regret I couldn't have contributed something to. And, um, there's probably a lot of recordings that I regret that I couldn't sort of reevaluate. Re but as far as working with someone, if I haven't worked with them, I'm probably at least communicating with them about working with them. 
So I can't complain, really. Let me put it this way. If you could have gone back and worked with uh, some of the guys that maybe uh, passed away um, before you really got into music, uh, are there one or two that you just would have blown your mind to work with, like a Hendrix or somebody like that? Well, yeah, I mean, Alan Douglas, who I had the privilege to work with in recordings uh, and, and uh, archiving music, he always told me that it would be great if you and Tony Williams had worked with Jimi Hendrix. And uh, that I always kept in mind. So that's probably about it. Looking at the um, American music scene or UK, but English speaking uh, music, is there anyone out there today that you kind of admire and think that, you know, it's really interesting what they're doing? Outside of America, you mean? No, no, within America, or I'm looking uh, for, you know, English speaking music. So either UK or America. But, you know, yeah, there is. And I'm, I'm for the most part, probably 90% I'm in touch with them. So. Is there anyone that you'd like to mention by name that you kind of think is like doing something interesting today? Well, uh, I'd have to say that if there is, I'm probably talking to them. Oh, okay. Well, I was just thinking, Bill, that if you mention somebody, uh, a, a listener or watcher of what we're doing here might uh, hear that and say, oh, Bill Aswell said, you know, this guy's all right. Maybe I'll check him out. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, I'm, I have a feeling I'm communicating with them already. But if there's anybody you think of, call me back and let me know. Fair enough. Bill, are there one or two sort of uh, unforgettable experiences you can share with us looking back at this road that you've journeyed in music, whether it was something in the studio, uh, something that happened on the road, um, something, you know, one or two things that maybe you just really stick out in your mind. You know, it's, I get that, uh, <clears throat> a lot, but it's really hard to, to pull things out. Um, a few years ago I played in Japan with DJ Crush and we played with, uh, Gaga Ku Orchestra, which was the official music for the Japanese emperor. And they had no previous experience playing any, any musicians outside of the, their group or uh, anything that wasn't connected to their particular uh, concept. That was very special. Um, and as far as live, when I was 
15 years old, I saw Tony Williams' Lifetime with Larry Young and John McLaughlin and Jack Bruce, and that was special. And the year before, I saw Jimi Hendrix twice in Detroit. Um, A lot of the traditional music I've seen in India and Africa um, comes to mind. And I guess those are the basic, basic things. Wow, what an amazing lineup uh, with Jack Bruce. And uh, I regret not having been able to see Jimi Hendrix, but it was a little slightly before my time. Yeah, I just made it myself by like a year. <laughs> what is it about the world music scene that, that appeals to you and, and calls to you so much? I don't know. I guess it's just natural. And um, it happened pretty early on, you know, and I used to read about uh, Don Cherry going, you know, to Afghanistan and Pakistan and India. And, recording and playing his trumpet and Ginger Baker going to Nigeria and through West Africa. Um, and I was pretty young age and it kind of, I guess that stuff kind of triggered it. And then um, John Coltrane picking up on Ravi Shankar and, and meditative music. And I think those things were big influences and I just continued from where I thought they were kind of leading. You know, I haven't traveled abroad um, much, but it seems to me that you know, Europe and other parts of the world, Japan, um, they seem more open to American music than maybe Americans are to world music. Uh, do you agree with that? And do you think that Americans are kind of missing out to, to a great extent of what they could uh, pick up and enjoy if they open themselves up to more of the world's music? Uh, well, I think that was a period where America was aware of what they what people call world music and there was a time when you could go to a college bookstore or a barnes and noble and even the tower records and you would find sections called world music and they had uh, music from everywhere and there was an interest and there was a an audience and and there were groups from all over the world touring, mostly through universities. Touring. Uh, but in the last five or six years, it just starts to fade away. Uh, so today, yes, Europe has more of an advantage. I was just in Poland, and they had a lot of African music. 
available and on te and they had African channels on television. A lot of it related to music. And, but America has changed from times past and not that long ago because you used to could buy that music in the store. Now it's not really there. Well, also for a time you had some of the uh, high profile artists uh, like Peter Gabriel and and uh, Paul Simon and, and David Byrne were kind of bringing some of that more to the masses here. Well, that yeah, that helped. That came a little later. Uh, it was there before, uh, but Peter had his real world and then the, uh, the others were you know, bring things out. And, um, but that's been a while ago. Bill, being a, a bass player, are there any uh, other bass players in particular that you kind of admire their style or, um, you know, who do you like to listen to on bass? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really listen to anyone playing bass these days. I mean, starting out, I liked, uh, as a kid, I liked uh, Duck Dunn and Chuck Rainey and Jerry Jamat and those guys. I didn't listen to Motown so much. Uh, and then I graduated into rock bass players who had some innovative people like Chris Squire and John Entwistle and the guy in the Wishbone Ash and Jack Bruce a little bit. And then from that point, I just, after I heard Paul Chambers or Charlie Hayden, I just sort of gradually developed my own way of doing things. And so I didn't rely on other people for information or ideas. And I just, went my own kind of way so you know some of the guys i've spoken to like uh, whether it's um p-funk or the prince camp you know it seems to me that some of the best most innovative music that's come out in popular music has come from those artists who have kind of insulated themselves a little bit from the outside world and not been um you know tainted if you will by what's on the radio what's popular, but just kind of um, woodshedding and doing their own thing and not having those influences and just creating. Um, so is that something that you think is of merit and of value? Well, I, I just, in the last 20 years, I just stopped uh, acknowledging what people were doing with that instrument. And I take an idea and I, becomes a, a poem or a sentence or a story and then you try to solidify it or you take it to a place, a hidden place or you make it holy. You don't depend on the drawings of the, the sketches of other people's ideas. You, have to take it to a holy place and then you make it a music. So it's, uh, it's a different process if you want to go into it really deep. 
You know, I think that you have to be one of, if not the um, most active or prolific music makers of the past many decades who's not super well known among the general masses is is that something that you desired uh, do you like sort of being in the background being a bit of an enigma or you know do you care about uh, fame or wh where do you go on that spectrum bill well, I, you know, I pretty much i designed it i guess on purpose you know i didn't want to jump up and say it's me i did it it's great i didn't i'm not the guy you're gonna meet at the breakfast you know so i just wanted to do what i thought was valid or, or um, important for me at the time and something that would that would um, exist that would carry on that would carry on and it didn't i never thought about fame of the fame of it or how it would be considered uh, you know and it, it wasn't uh uh opportunity to be uh famous or something like that that wasn't the the idea. You're not like the uh, guitar player that gets into uh, it for the girls. <laughs> right. Fame and girls. It's the opposite. Yeah. No, it's um, it's always been kind of the same, and uh, I don't have really a problem with that. How do you feel about sampling? You know, that's a Something that came about, you know, after you had been in it for a while, and then it got so big. What's your take on sampling? Well, it's just reusing a sound. If the sound worked, and it, that means it'll probably work again. It's no big deal, unless you get brutally murdered in somebody's thing from you. It's it's fine, you know. And I do it myself all the time. Is there any style of music that you feel is harder to play or more challenging to play than some of the others? Um, you've gone in so many different directions. Can, can you maybe um, pick one or two out that's sort of especially challenging? Well, I, I think they're all challenging depending on your approach. You know, some great bebop guy could not play dub very well I'm pretty sure and in that sense a uh, country music guy who has a great feel couldn't play bebop it's all about where you decide to go with your information your ability well you know this show is called truth and rhythm and that's what I aim to achieve in you know producing it and hosting it all that what to you would define that? You know, how do you find truth in the rhythmic music that you create? Well, it's uh, for me comes, I guess, to, to a bass and drum relationship, and I think anyone can hear right away when individuals are speaking 
a language and they're communicating that language that can be translated without understanding because it's not about understanding so much it's transferring energy that that steps way above dialogue and description and it, it gets really down to a feel that's unforgettable so 20 years from now you'll never forget how you felt when you heard that and that's special music has this thing that's a very fundamental special feeling and when you when you speak that language perfectly doesn't mean it's in time doesn't mean it's in tune it's just a special energy that's communicated with a special language and when that happens and it has happened quite a lot i don't i'm not saying recently although i'm sure it, it must be then you have that moment and that moment is the times that give you this memory of, of a special feeling it's transcendent yeah yes um is there any one or two projects you could point to that say that you could say wow i'm really most proud of this creation or this particular pro uh, project you know that's difficult because there's a lot of them um there's too many of them to even to add up uh, it would be leaving out too much you just i think you just have to listen do you have any advice for young musicians who may be starting out today you know how to be successful and how to um how to come together in a group setting as a musician well it's it's probably a little more difficult today but uh, i would say look for people that you trust and you admire and you don't question you know and, and and try to develop something fundamental something simple that's based on first uh, um, like a sound communication and then develop it as a rhythm and then keep it try to keep it consistent as a rhythm, no matter how simple it, it, it might be. And now, you know, don't, uh, don't put everything into that instrument that looks good, the one you want to have, because somebody else has that one. And don't base everything on something else that someone else has played because somebody liked it. You know, you have to find an individual presence and your own touch your own sound there's pressure there you know jamaican some bass players they can't even they don't even know the notes on the bass but 
something to do with their sense of pressure from the finger to the string puts them in a very high place that you can't learn that in those music schools. You know, it's a special thing. African, West African music, they approach it a very similar way. What are you working on right now, uh, Bill? And what do you expect to work on in the near future? Well, right now I'm behind on a lot of things. It's a lot of a lot of remix stuff. I have a solo project I'm trying to do, which has a lot of guest people working with uh, John Zorn, Milford Graves, with Dave Douglas, the trumpet player. Uh, and again, a lot of mixing that's work for hire kind of um and i'm trying to do get back to the miles davis estate and do a remix of the, another uh statement of miles davis music. what what is your approach when you do those projects the uh reconstructions uh they're all different you know sometimes i just listen for weeks to the stuff and and then it hits me and then I could just jump and do it quickly. So it's, it's always different. Is it hard to get rights to, to the music to do that? Uh, sometimes, not all. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Is there anything else that you'd like to convey or share that we haven't talked about? Um, I don't know. That's a lot of stuff. So. <laughs> Where, where can people uh, keep track of what you're up to? You've got a, a website or a Facebook? Online, there's a website and Facebook, and it's all over the place. Okay, and are you touring at all? or? I don't really tour because I don't have a fixed band, but uh, I just came from Poland, and uh, I think we have stuff coming in Italy. Uh, there's a few things in New York that comes in December and January. So, yeah, there's a little bit of touring. Well, I've definitely been enjoying some of your uh, videos on, on YouTube. Um, how, do you, I don't, how do you feel about that when those things are uploaded on YouTube? You're good with that or you feel like you should get uh, compensated? No, it's it's good. All that stuff is positive. It's nobody should. It's impossible to get compensated for that. It's like it doesn't really matter. It's good that it's there. So. Good. Okay, I, I agree. Well, with that, I'm going to wrap this up. If you could just hang tight for a minute, Bill, I'm going to sign off and uh, just. Hold. Um, it's time to wrap up this edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks to my special guest, Mr. Bill Laswell. One of the most prolific and groundbreaking electronic rock, funk, and world music innovators of all time. Thank you again so much, Bill, for sharing your time and experiences. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Be sure to be on the lookout for upcoming Truth and Rhythm episodes and catch up with previous installments on funkandstuff.net and YouTube, iTunes, and other leading providers. Want to hear from you? Drop us a line at scottg at funkandstuff.net and let us know what you think and who you want to see or hear on the show. 
And until next time, on behalf of Bill Asphalt, this is Scott, Dr. Jake Skolfein saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.